welcome to the At Peace Parents podcast. I'm Casey, and I'm here to empower you in your decision-making as a parent of a demand-avoidant child. My goal is to share insights that will generate aha moments and support your connection with your child. I'm a mom of two amazing little boys, one of whom is PDA, and I've worked with hundreds of parents just like you to teach them how to lead their child out of burnout and find the clarity, peace, and sense of community they need. How do I know if I'm not setting my PDA child up for failure by, quote, rewarding bad behavior constantly? So this is a question I get all the time on Instagram and Facebook. It's one that is way too complex for me to answer in a comment on Facebook or social media. Um, It's also something that comes up all the time in my client work. And it's also something that passes through my head when I'm not centered, which is, is me accommodating my child going to reward or encourage this behavior that my son will then take out into the quote real world and he won't be able to have friends. He won't be able to get a job. He won't be able to succeed, which is what we all want for our children, whether or not that includes in, you know, complete independence because that varies. I have five things that I'm going to talk about. It's going to be like a mini training to answer this question. Um, The first one I want to talk about is validating this question. The second is about the fact that it's not behavior, what we're responding to. The third is the purpose of the accommodations, the deep why behind like why we're doing what we're doing, Um, the long game, and then the choice we make as parents. So I wrote down notes because this is a complex topic. (laughs) Okay, so the first thing I want to say is just to validate any parent who has ever asked this question, which is a very logical question to ask. Like, of course, you're going to wonder if my child screams at me and I don't do anything, am I not allowing or reinforcing the screaming? Right. Or if I just allow my child to throw a Twix wrapper on the ground and I don't ask them to pick it up, isn't that just teaching them that they don't have to have any respect for anyone's home, their own home, their family or the environment? Of course, you're going to think that that's completely logical. Right. It's also the way that, you know, we think about the accommodation approach is very counterintuitive and goes against everything that you know about parenting. It goes against all types of reward consequence parenting. It goes against the way that children are educated. It goes against most therapeutic practices, which are based on assumptions of behavioral motivations, right? Like there is an antecedent in that you can observe what causes the behavior in the moment. There's an antecedent, there's a behavior, there's a consequence. So it's going to be even harder for you if you're watching or listening this to this, if you're a trained professional in psychology, if you're a speech language pathologist, if you're um, a BCBA, because you have been trained professionally to think in the opposite way of what I'm going to explain to you. So I just want to validate that whether you're a parent or a professional, that of course you're going to have this question. And even if you're deep in the practice of accommodation daily, it's still going to pop up. And that's okay because it's our conditioning. It's the way that you were raised. It's probably the way that you raised your child until you realized that they had a nervous system disability. So it's going to take time to sort of fully wrap your mind and heart around it. 
But now that I've validated the question, I'm going to go ahead and answer it. So again, the question is, how do we know we're not rewarding bad behavior and setting our kids up for failure by taking an accommodation approach? Okay, so the first thing I want to say is that it's so important that we always have our PDA glasses on or our PDA lens on and understand that it's not behavior. Because if we look at it as behavior, we're going to immediately go into our conditioning of, well, I need to extinguish this behavior or I need to reward the child for having a different behavior. But what's really happening is what you're seeing is equalizing behavior and a fight, flight, freeze response, which is what causes a lot of avoidance, right? But on the surface, it all looks the same, right? Like if you are like, hey, put your put your shoes on and they like run away from you, it just looks like bad behavior and avoidance. But the root cause is that their brain is perceiving danger. And so their nervous system is going off and their heart is racing and like they're having a physio physiological response to to the situation, right? And what this means is they're not in their thinking brain. Okay, so your question is about like, how do I teach my child not to do this? Well, they actually can't learn when they're in their amygdala or their limbic system, which is the complete like autonomic, reflexive, when there's a lion in front of you, your body reacts. They're, they're not in their learning part of the brain. Okay, and the second thing I wanna say is they probably already know right from wrong. And they probably already know, like, it's not, quote, socially appropriate to, like, take a board game and throw it across the room when I'm losing. The thing is, in the moment, they can't access their rational thought and the skills that they have beneath the threat response in the same way that, like, when I'm having a panic attack, I can't talk to you about like statistical regressions, even though I know them, <laughs> right? Because it's a different part of my brain and a different nervous system state that I'm in. So I wanna give you guys an example to ground this. So let's say, and this example has happened in my home too. Let's say you're playing a board game with your child or rummicube and the child is starting to lose and so they might start equalizing and changing the rules and then they might get frustrated because they're still losing and then maybe they start like playing with the rummy cube tiles in a different way or maybe building or maybe they throw the um rummy cube game across the room altogether all of which has happened with my son so in the moment, like your conditioned traditional parent brain is going to be like, I can't let my child do this because A, it's like not fair to anyone else playing and B, if I let this go, then like, how are they going to play games in, outside of the home so that they can make friends, right? So it's a valid concern. But what we have to remember is like the throwing the rummy cube tiles or even building with the rummy cube tiles or changing the rules of the game is actually a nervous system response it's not behavior so then as parents we have a choice point right we can either continue to escalate the child by responding with tra traditional parenting strategies or we can accommodate and bring the activation down the thing is that the accommodation it feels counterintuitive because it feels like you're rewarding bad behavior, but it's not behavior, it's nervous system activation. Okay, so the third thing is the purpose of accommodations is 
to get your child more consistently into a place where they're operating, not always from fight, flight, freeze, like always in the amygdala. Okay. And that's especially if you have a younger PDA child or your child is in burnout, they're just constantly at that threshold where they're like, no matter what you do, no matter what you say, they're going into fight, flight, freeze. And, you know, this is ironically the time when it's hardest to wrap your mind around quote, not rewarding bad behavior because they're acting quote, so difficult. Right. But the purpose and how you can think of it is like every time you make the choice between activation and accommodation, every time you choose accommodation, you're bringing the child out of the amygdala back into the frontal lobe. Okay, so every time you have a choice and you're strengthening the relationship because you're signaling safety, right? So rather than thinking of it as rewarding bad behavior, we can think of it like I have a choice point as a parent and I can either move my child back into their thinking brain so they have a chance at learning, quote, appropriate ways to play Rummy Cube or a chance at accessing these skills that they already have rather than, you know, trying to teach them them something that they actually can't learn in the moment. So let me give you two examples. So this morning, I have them written down. Okay, so this morning, I was making my son's lunch, and I took out um, his Tupperware from his lunch yesterday, and I saw that he had not eaten like any of his lunch, mostly Doritos, mostly Lay's potato chips. He rotates, especially at school, through like crunchy um, processed foods. So my old self would have been like, oh, that's so annoying. You know, like he can't just choose whatever he wants to eat. He has to eat what I provide for him. This is ridiculous because it's changing all the time. But instead, I made the choice to accommodate him, which was like, I went into the room, I sat on the floor, I said, I noticed that, you know, the Tupperware is still full with your nacho, with your Doritos and your Lay's. And he's like, and, you know, three years ago, he would have just screamed at me. Now he's like, well, I don't like them anymore. Okay. And I was like, oh, I can get you pretzels. No. Each time I'm like fighting against my old self, which would have been like, he can't talk to me like that. I'm the authority. This is not appropriate to speak to, you know, a mother like this. I shouldn't be sitting on the floor. This is, this is all the stuff that parents think, by the way, it's not just me who used to think like this, like in the privacy of coaching containers, all of us are working through the same thing, unless we're unicorns, in which case, congratulations. (laughs) Um, So, Eventually, I figured out like what he could actually eat and accommodated him, right? And and I luckily I'm at a place in my journey where I didn't like ruminate on all the things that like I'm setting him up to fail at. But I just want to validate that in the beginning of my journey, I did think like that and I had to fight against it and understand the logic or like quote what my husband calls the theory of change to commit to it. The second thing, um, is like putting shoes on, right? Like my son is completely capable of putting his shoes on, but I still put them on often. Am I teaching him that he can, like teaching him that he doesn't need to know how to put his shoes on? No, I'm I'm allowing him to regulate his nervous system so that ironically and paradoxically, he's actually more likely 
to put his shoes on at school because he's not activated, right? It's a very paradoxical way of thinking about things. And I know what you're going to say. The counter argument is always, well, what if it involves other people, right? And of course, like, of course, that's a nuance and we want to think about it. And I'm going to get to it in the next point. But in the moment, like, we can't let the fear of like, is my kid going to have friends when they're 16 or, you know, 18 because they're not, you know, playing by the rules of shoots and ladders derail us. Okay, the last, the oh, second to last thing. So we always want to think about the long game and why this can be so counterintuitive. It's like, it's a long game. The purpose is to like continually put your child back into their thinking brain and to create new neural pathways and a different relationship. Okay, and that takes time. Like, it takes years, right? And I personally, like for my son and for the families I work with, I don't know exactly where the child is going to land on like how much of the threat response is going to be disabling to them and how much is going to be like new neural pathways and they're able to, you know, navigate things with the relationship and scaffolding that we as parents provide. But what I do know is that paradoxically, the more that you accommodate in the home, the more they can access things outside of the home because they're more in the thinking brain and they already have the skills most of the time. I also think, and I know this can be hard to believe, they're also all good kids, right? So they want to do well, they just can't. So finally, you know, when things get confusing or complex or like, you know, I'm at my wit's end, I like sometimes come back to just the choice of like, am I choosing this based on fear or am I choosing this based on what I see in the moment and the love that my son needs? And the fear can be there and you can still make the choice, right? It's a choice. Like, I don't know exactly how my son's going to be when he's 10 or 18 or 30. I don't know what's going to happen for anybody in the future because we don't know, right? But in the moment, we can choose. We can choose to believe that doing this is the wrong approach, which personally, I don't think it is because of all the people that I've worked with and my own son's journey. But like, we can choose to have faith in our children and to have faith that like, if you choose love over and over and over again, it's going to be okay in whatever capacity that is. So let me give you one last example of how this isn't always easy, but you can still choose it. So this morning, like I was trying to help my kids out to the van and like, it's always hurting cats and like, you know, I'm unplugging the hybrid van and I'm trying to get the service dog out there and both of them are shouting for their iPads and their transition treats. And like, you know, I'm always feeling a little on edge, especially from the years my son spent in school refusal. And like, you know, my fear brain is like at any moment, it could all fall apart. And like, he's going to just one day wake up and refuse to go to school. Of course I have those thoughts, but I'm like trying to manage myself. I'm like, you know, trying to get him all settled, get the blankets up over their heads so they don't fight with each other. You know, they won't wear coats, even though it's winter in Michigan. 
right? But then they're cold. So we got to have blankets. And of course, like every step of the way, I'm just like, this is ridiculous. In one part of my brain, the other's like, no, I'm accommodating. It's fine. So, you know, I'm trying to like maneuver to get my older PDA son's car seat buckled. And he's snapping at me like, you're in my way, you're in my way, because I'm in the way of his iPad. And like, again, I have this choice of like, if I don't correct him, he is going to end up being a jerk when he's older. <laughs> I think that sometimes. But then I'm like, wait, remember the, fir- the first four points. He is not in his thinking brain. This is a fear response. It's not behavior. I can choose to accommodate. I can bring him back to his thinking brain. And that is where he'll access his true self and his heart space and the goodness that is him instead of it just being activated. So... I chose to, you know, make fun of myself and be like, oh, I'm sorry, like, mommy's in your way again. Like, I mean, sometimes I I get really silly with it. I'm like, oh, man, mommy's such a chubster, like, you know, or he calls me mommy McFat, but sometimes and I'm like, who cares? That's not for everyone. I always get a lot of like, activated comments and social media when I say things like that. But I'm just telling you the truth. Thanks everyone for being here with me at the At Peace Parents podcast. This is your source for all things related to understanding, supporting, accommodating, and advocating for your PDA child. To go deeper on any of these topics, check out my course offerings and masterclasses at the website www.atpeaceparents.com.